It's a new year, and that means it's time to say hello and thank you to our newest Patreon members, including Rachel L. from St. Peter's, Missouri, Kirsten S. from Milwaukee, Oregon, Deanna C. in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, and Melanie M. from Vancouver, Washington. Thank you all so much for your support. It means so much to us, and we hope you enjoy all of your bonus episodes and extra bloopers and having your names said out loud by our beautiful, sexy voices. <laughs> and if you want your name said by our voices or even Josh's, you can join our Patreon by searching Murder in the Rain at patreon.com. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. In 1974, Carl Cletus Bowles was serving concurrent state and federal sentences at Oregon State Penitentiary. He, alongside Wilfred Gray, had gone on a four-day multi-state crime spree in 1965, robbing a motel and raping the desk clerk, committing a brazen midday bank robbery in Portland, Oregon, killing a sheriff's deputy in Eugene, kidnapping multiple families, and fleeing from authorities through Oregon, California, and Nevada. Both men were sentenced to life in prison and were never to be considered for parole. Gray pleaded guilty for the part he played in their crimes and was sent to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas with a potential parole date in 2040. Wilfred Marion Gray died in prison September 21st, 2004. If you haven't already listened, you can hear that story in last week's episode, Catching Cletus Part 1. And you should, as I think it helps highlight many of Carl Bowles' red flags, which should have been noticed by prison officials and staff and could have prevented the man from acting out a sequel of sorts to his 1965 crimes. <laughs> On March 9, 1968, 700 inmates took control of the Oregon State Penitentiary, infiltrating cell blocks, the kitchen, hospital, and other units. Fires were set, 40 hostages were taken, only one shot was fired, and after 15 hours, negotiations brought the incident to an end. The riot occurred after years of declining conditions and three inmate suicides over a one-month period. The prisoners had a list of demands, an expanded work release program, better medical care, and the replacement of the current warden. Some inmates blame the riot additionally on their frustration towards the red line system, which forced them to walk single file along a painted stripe on the floor. Those demands were agreed to minutes before a tactical assault on the inmates was to take place, which had been authorized by then-Governor Tom McCall. And that's when Hoyt Cup strolled in. He had been the deputy superintendent of the Oregon State Correctional Facility, a newly constructed prison built to combat population strain at the penitentiary since 1958. He was named superintendent of the Oregon State Penitentiary, replacing 73-year-old warden Clarence Gladden, who was already planning to retire due to a cancer diagnosis. They really snuck one past the inmates with that one. So earlier you mentioned the prisoners having an issue with redlining, and I wonder what their issue was. Like, what was the problem with walking along that line? I, I believe it was that it was dehumanizing, that they had to just, they couldn't mill about, they couldn't walk. They, oh, they, okay, they were forced to do something in a certain way. Yeah, any movement between cell locks and, I don't know, administration buildings, uh, medical units, they were walking down a stripe, which... It was like kindergarten level, and they probably weren't very cool about anyone 
stepping out of line, yeah. even accidentally. It's a little military, too. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if the prison at the time was following like military oh, yeah, standards. Maybe. Yeah, I think the old warden, Gladden, was a little more, was way more strict, more of a dictator. And, and under his, under his uh, reign, the prison was like falling apart. There were rats. Mm. The like the concrete had was like falling apart. There was mold. I mean, yeah, it was just awful. To be honest, their requirements or their requests were not crazy. Yeah, right. Like they're reasonable requests. Yeah, they're like two steps away from me. Like, can we have a bed <laughs> yeah. and a toilet and blankets and pillows? Yeah. Like, yeah, medical. That's not reasonable. Yeah, clean like cleanliness. Reasonable. No rats. Nah, <laughs> live with them. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Less cockroaches? Can we just get less cockroaches? Hoyt Carl Cup was born in 1927 and raised in Salem, Oregon, graduating from Salem High School. Hired because his uncle ran the nearby prison farm, he began his career as a guard in 1948, the youngest ever hired at the prison. He graduated from the School of Correctional Administration at George Washington University in 1956 and earned his bachelor's degree from Western Oregon State College in 1977. He served on the Navy cruiser Springfield in the South Pacific during World War II and back at home committed to serving his community. He was on the boards of the Salem YMCA, the Salvation Army, Campfire Girls, and the Salem Boys Club. He even hosted talks about judo at his local YWCA. At one time, he was the president of the American Cancer Society in Salem and was a longtime member of the Quiet Birdman, a national pilots organization, as well as being a decorated marksman. The day after the 1968 riot, freshly minted Superintendent Cup walked the prison's dining room as the inmates ate. Quote, In my own way, I had to let them know I was running the place. And not just by being big and domineering. You have to have good discipline. You can't let people know you're fearful. Unquote. Cup was a workaholic who often ate with inmates and chatted with them in the yard. He also encouraged expansion of the prison's recreational and educational programs. One of these improvements included the construction of an 18-hole mini golf course. And at one point, there were even peacocks walking the grounds. Wow. Fancy. Cup had a set of principles that became the state system's unofficial rules. Serve hearty food. Keep the institution clean. Don't lie to an inmate. Promote communication between inmates and officers. Provide prisoners with work, education, and recreation to limit their idle time. Offer rehabilitation programs to all inmates desiring change. Treat inmates with respect and expect them to follow suit. At Oregon State Penitentiary, Carl Cletus Bowles seemed to have changed his ways. He openly expressed remorse for his crimes, and his desire to reform from his criminal behavior seemed evident as he expressed interest in getting an education. His charm, good looks, and smaller stature eased prison staff, which I am sure he knew and took advantage of. Superintendent Hoyt Cup was one who fell under the charm of Carl Cletus, so much so that he became an advocate for Bowles' rehabilitation. Bowles was lucky enough to have found himself a fiancé while behind bars. Actually, it was more so that she found him. She may have just been a lonely person looking for love, or perhaps they shared some connection, both of them being from Texas, but however the connection was made, Joan Coberly, 24, had been writing letters to Bowles and their relationship grew through their correspondence. Eventually, she came to visit him in person, over a dozen times between August 1973 and May of 1974. And at some point, Bowles confessed to Superintendent Cup that Joan was set to become his wife. 
Ms. Coberly also spoke with Superintendent Cup several times during her visits and was known to him as, quote, a responsible, concerned type of individual, with whom he saw a positive, nurturing relationship and connection to the outside world, which he believed was crucial to inmate rehabilitation. Another of Cup's reforms, and one I imagine was pretty popular among inmates, was a conjugal visit program. Designed to maintain connections to loved ones and society at large, it had shown positive results after being tested in a number of prisons and was implemented as a statewide honor system in 1968, the year Cup became superintendent. Most of the participating institutions provided lodging, such as trailers or simple cabins, for the conjugal program. Oregon State Penitentiary, however, had no such accommodations. So inmates were allowed to leave the prison to visit with their partners in their homes. Oh, boy. Always supervised by correction employees and officers. Bowles submitted his first request for a conjugal visit on February 17th, receiving a four-hour pass, which had never been issued to someone with a record of kidnapping and cop killing. He left and returned from the visit with no issues, visiting with Joan, who had taken up residence at a, or maybe the, Motel 6 in Salem, so as to remain close to her betrothed. Three months later, Carl Cletus requested a 36-hour pass for May 17th. The request was denied, and he instead accepted another four-hour pass. On May 17th, at 8.15 p.m., Bowles was escorted by a prison counselor, also a karate expert, to the Motel 6. He was dressed prison transport casual, meaning he wasn't clad in any kind of shackle, neither handcuffs nor leg irons. So he was not shackled whatsoever. Was he even in a police vehicle for this transport, or is he just sitting next to his buddy, the karate cop, heading to his girlfriend's karate house? Karate cop. He's like, Cletus, throw a cassette in. Let's get crazy. <laughs> Free bird, baby. Get your motor running. <laughs> Bowles and the counselor walked up to room 30, where Carl was greeted by Joan Coberly. They were then left unsupervised, with the counselor waiting in the motel's parking lot in his vehicle though he made sure his spot had a good view of the room door. Finally alone, when Carl Cletus entered the motel room and shut the door behind him, his first question to Joan was, did you bring a gun? At 11 p.m., the counselor knocked at the door. The social pass was good from 8 p.m. to midnight, so it was time for he and Bowles to head back to the penitentiary. There was no answer. He knocked again, then ran to get the manager, who opened the door. They found the room empty. The bed had not been used, nor the shower. The room had a rear door, which the guard knew to be alarmed, but then learned from the manager that it was never activated until after midnight. Carl Cletus and Joan had a three-hour head start on them. The couple had fled in Joan's 62 Ford Thunderbird, and there was no sighting of them or the car for six days. That was when it was found abandoned on the Reed College campus in southeast Portland, nearly 50 miles north of Salem. On the day Bowles escaped, Hoyt Cup was in Arkansas, overseeing the Western Wardens Association meeting, where he received a phone call from the governor of Oregon, who informed him of Bowles' flight, then fined him $1,000 and suspended him for 14 days. This light punishment was determined after weighing Cup's esteemed career, but the governor also warned that Cup would have to resign if Bowles committed any acts of violence while on the loose. It was later found that a message regarding Bowles' imminent escape was never seen by Cup and never entered into Bowles' file. The message had been sent by teletype to the Oregon State Penitentiary in September of 1973, 
by an Amarillo, Texas detective named Jimmy Stevens, who I found no other mention of, and I think the brevity of his time in this story adds an air of mystery to the man. Who is Jimmy Stevens? Anyway, the message warned that Joan was planning to help Bowles escape, which would have been nice to know yesterday. And side note, a teletype is a printing device that resembles a typewriter and is used to send and receive telephonic signals, which it translates to typed-out text on little pieces of paper. The pair had disappeared and continued to hide from authorities for a month. On Friday, June 8th, Oregon Governor Tom McCall issued a statement which was then broadcast by West Coast radio stations, in which he pleaded with Bowles to surrender, funnily enough, to save Superintendent Cup's career. He also guaranteed Bowles' safety if he would turn himself in. This message fell on deaf ears with Carl Cletus, but Joan was weary, and to her it may have sounded like a lifeline. On June 13th, in Eugene, Joan showed her identification to buy beer at a neighborhood market. The clerk, recognizing her from the news bulletins and television broadcasts, followed her briefly before breaking away and calling the cops, who responded quickly, establishing a perimeter around the area of her sighting. At 8 a.m. the next day, Friday, June 14th, Bowles left the apartment they were hiding out in to take a walk. At 33rd Avenue and South Willamette Street, he was approached by two federal agents who asked him for identification. His appearance, quote, vaguely reminded them of the description of Bowles that had been blasted across the radio, television, and newspapers for the previous month. Instead of a wallet, Carl Cletus waited until the agents closed most of the distance between them, then pulled out a pistol and began firing. A, quote, extensive gunfight ensued, and in the chaos, it was reported that one agent dropped his firearm, which Bowles somehow managed to snag before fleeing the scene. A house-to-house -house search began. Joan Coberly was quickly discovered and arrested without incident, but Carl Cletus somehow slipped out of Eugene and vanished for two days. After her arrest, Joan's lawyer, Donald B. Bowerman, said, quote, I believe she wanted to get caught. Joan Coberly was born in Lubbock, Texas, like Bowles. At 13, she ran away from home, afterward living with foster parents, and graduating from high school in 1969. Nice. Thank you. For three years, she then worked as a bank accountant in Oklahoma City before moving to Monrovia in Southern California and taking work as an assistant bookkeeper in Pasadena. At some point, she and Bowles began communicating through letters, eventually meeting in person and plotting his escape. While performing a background check as part of the investigation, police discovered that Joan was not Carl Cletus's fiance, but in fact, his niece. <gasps> what? I'm glad they didn't do that conjugal visit. <laughs> it was never mentioned in any way if there was a sexual relationship between the two. I think it was more of a ruse for the escape, but his name is Cletus. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> Let's not be judgy. Did they know each other from being in Texas and being family? And they just faked, oh, look, I found you and I wrote a letter and now we're escaped lovers? Or had she tracked him down and found out he was her uncle? Yeah, from uh, detail in the Anne Rule story that I read that was called The Conjugal Visit, I think in her book Empty Promises, they talked about Joan knowing Carl and also kind of looking up to him as a hero. And I, th I think she was sort of just... Uh, so they had already known each other. Yes, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and then she, she just kind of became, I think, enraptured by the idea of that mm -hmm. sort of outlaw lifestyle. And I'll have you know the name Cletus is derived from Greek. It's just not as popular as some of the other counterparts. But there was a pope named Anacletus. Just saying. Questioned by investigators, 
Joan admitted to her participation from the start. After speeding away from the Motel 6 and ditching her car in Portland, she and Bowles stayed overnight with friends of his, who then drove the wanted duo to Eugene, where they hid at a commune, which was discovered to actually be more of a stark, concrete bunker. After bunkering down for 10 to 12 days, they moved to an apartment in Eugene on or around May 28th. This apartment, located on Eugene's South Willamette Street, belonged to a widow who was away temporarily and had no idea her place was being used to harbor fugitives. The men who transported them to Eugene were arrested at some point along the line. The charges against one of the men ended up being dropped. The other was prosecuted, and he served time for harboring bulls in Coberly. Jones served a three-year term in the Oregon Women's Correctional Institution for hindering prosecution in Bowles' escape. According to her lawyer, she and her husband in <gasps> California reconciled their definitely secure and enduring marriage. <laughs> Bowles, who had disappeared after firing on federal agents in Eugene, next appeared on Sunday, June 16th, in Kingston, Idaho, 500 miles from Eugene, where he proceeded to camperjack a couple in their 60s named Louisa and Joseph Jacob, who were parked on the side of the road, just like the Reekstons family from part one of this story. Brandishing a gun, he told them to drive him to Coeur d'Alene, which was about a 40-minute drive west. As they approached the city of nearly 45,000 residents, Joseph Jacob, who was driving, threw a punch at Bowles, striking him in the eye, shouting, quote, I've had enough of this foolishness. Either kill me or get the hell out. Carl Cletus, who was accustomed to being in control when he had a gun in his hand, was, quote, flabbergasted and, quote, almost meekly alighted from the camper. Back on the road and desperate for transport, Cletus then stopped a car containing two men, forcing them to drive him. They only went a few miles before one of the men told Bowles to keep the car and let them out, which he did. An ambulance driver who witnessed Bowles carjacking the two men radioed the Kootenay County Sheriff's Office, which began a pursuit of the fugitive. After only a mile and a half of driving, the car carrying Bowles crashed into a utility pole, wrecking it. Carl Cletus ran from the sound of approaching sirens, using his gun to stop a man on a motorcycle, climbing on the bike behind him and making him speed off. 43 miles later, as Bowles and his new hostage entered Post Falls, Idaho, the motorcycle overturned. Carl Cletus was relatively unharmed from the bike dumping over, and he fled, as was his custom. He soon reached the bank of the Spokane River, and began wading into the chilly water. Police Sergeant Jim Guy, who was in pursuit of Bowles, stopped at the water's edge and ordered the man, who was in it up to his knees, literally and metaphorically, to freeze. Bowles spun around. Sergeant Gray spotted the pistol in his hand and was able to get a shot off first. Carl Cletus was hit in the abdomen, which dropped him where he stood. Police dragged him from the water, placing him under arrest, and transporting him to the Kootenay Memorial Hospital in Coeur d'Alene where he underwent five and a half hours of surgery to repair his colon. The intensity of his desperation at this point, of like camper to motorcycle, which I've never heard of in my life, of a motorcycle getting... No. Yeah, he got on and ride cycle and jacked. rode behind him. Yeah, and is like, I'm like, riding bitch, like but you're cute, my yeah, bitch. A cute couple. And <laughs> that then, would be pretty funny to see. And just crashing on a motorcycle and just getting up and going. You know what would be better? If it had a sidecar. Oh my God. <laughs> He's in the sidecar <laughs> holding, holding a gun. The gun. Now, do you have any goggles for me to wear? It's very windy. <laughs> and then, like, in a river, it's just the intensity and the mania. My goodness. Bowles survived the surgery on his bowels. Sometime after, while recuperating, Superintendent Hoyt Cup, who had traveled from Oregon, attended Bowles' hospital bedside 
where he pleaded with Bowles for information regarding a missing couple, Viola and Earl Hunter, both in their 60s. The old friends, finally reunited, spoke for two and a half hours. Back on June 14th in Eugene, Earl Hunter, a railroad freight office executive, called his wife Viola after hearing about the police activity and shootout in South Eugene. Viola was upset, as she had also heard about the gunfight, and wanted Earl to come home early, so he gathered his things and left for the day. On Monday, June 16th, police had been notified that the hunters had not been seen since the 14th, the day Bowles escaped the police dragnet and house-to-house search in Eugene. Police checked the hunter's house and found that three of the home's four beds had been slept in. This led them to believe Bowles might have had a forced slumber party with the hunters. I believe back then it was a little more common for couples to share separate beds, so two beds for Earl and Viola Hunter, and one for Bowles. It seemed Bowles had used the hunters, just as he and Wilfred Gray had done to the Corbin, Reekstons, and Champion families during their spree in 1965, cloaking himself, the wolf, under their traveling sheep's wool. Bowles eventually admitted that yes, while fleeing on foot from his gunfight with federal agents, he'd wound up in the hunter's backyard. There he found Viola Hunter on the back porch, and with two pistols trained in her direction, forced her inside to wait for Earl to return home. He then used the married couple in their 1971 tan-over-beige Chevy coupe to slip through the police perimeter, unnoticed. Bowles repeated to Cup over and over that he had released the hunters unharmed in Yakima, Washington, as a convenience, because the hunters told him they had friends there. Bowles said he then hitchhiked to Coeur d'Alene, where he was shot and captured. But Hoyt Cup felt he was lying. The hunter's son also appealed to Bowles for information, but made no headway, with Carl Cletus saying, quote, I didn't harm your people. I only shot one man in my life, unquote. That man being Deputy Carlton E. Smith in Eugene in 1965. On June 21st, the hunter's car was found on a residential street in Spokane, Washington, three hours from Yakima. It had been there a week, but in that time, none of the nearby homeowners had seen anyone in or around the car. FBI agents examined the vehicle, finding no signs of violence and no indication as to the hunter's location. At Oregon State Penitentiary, prison inmates started a memorial fund for the Hunter family. They quickly raised $400, donating from their 25 cent per day pay, with a prison official commenting that, quote, this is their way of showing that not everyone inside the prison is the Bowles type, unquote. The persistent questioning finally paid off. To no benefit of his own, Carl Cletus Bowles confessed to killing Viola and Earl Hunter. It was never known why he killed them. He never gave a reason. But I believe a life of further incarceration and the fact that he was never to be released, had emptied him to a husk with even less respect for human life than he had the first time he'd killed, pumping rounds into Deputy Smith and leaving him for dead. Even without the couple or their bodies, on June 27, 1974, Bowles pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, receiving a 75-year sentence for the killings of Viola and Earl Hunter. This was done in a conference room in the Kootenay Memorial Hospital, where Bowles was recovering which had been set up for a special court session. After fully recuperating from his brush with death, Carl Cletus was transferred to Idaho State Penitentiary to begin serving his sentence. On July 11th, a rancher discovered two badly decomposed bodies in a ditch in a willow thicket on a wheat ranch 25 miles from Spokane, Washington. Through dental records and personal items like jewelry on the bodies, they were identified as the hunters. Their bodies were found lying face down. Earl had been shot in the chest and head, 
Viola's cause of death was indeterminate due to her body's level of decomposition, though lead fragments were discovered on its shattered facial bones during the coroner's examination. The rancher who found the bodies was offered the $1,000 reward put up by the hunter's son-in-law, but he refused the money, saying, quote, The family certainly needs it. Their loss is much greater than that money would be for me. Unquote. After the discovery of the hunter's bodies, federal charges brought against Bowles resulted in him receiving two life sentences with no possibility of parole. Investigating Bowles' background, authorities found that his introduction to prison life came at age 13, after his parents placed him in the Texas Correctional Institute, a boys' reformatory facility. They had done this in reaction to Carl Cletus acting out after they had begun divorce proceedings. He was released a year later to his parents, who had somehow remained together, and was quickly returned to the institute, as his behavior had not improved. He spent the next two years there, before being released and then arrested again within two weeks for car theft and interstate transport of a vehicle. A life in and out of incarceration encouraged his criminal side, which is reflected, I believe, in the fact that his crimes only ramped up in seriousness over time. It seems Carl's parents birthed him, but prison had made him. Sentencing Judge William J. Grant, before administering Bowles' sentence, said, quote, There should be two other people here today, but can't. The hunters. Words cannot tell the seriousness of these crimes. Call them cold-blooded, vicious if you will. You should be separated from society for as long a time as possible. Unquote. Carl Cletus Bowles spent the rest of his life seven floors underground in a federal prison. He died there on April 27, 2005. Deputy Carlton E. Smith's son said in a 2006 Eugene Register Guard article, after learning that both of his father's killers had died behind bars, quote, I wasn't jumping up and down with joy that they died. I probably have some peace of mind knowing that neither of them will ever be outside prison walls where they can hurt someone else. Currently, only four states allow conjugal visits, California, Connecticut, New York, and Washington. Quote, the Federal Bureau of Prisons does not allow conjugal visits for prisoners in federal custody, unquote. On November 23, 1991, at a seminar named Criminal Justice in Oregon, Portland State University Professor of Administration of Justice Gary Perlstein was given a Hoyt C. Cup Award for, quote, significant and lasting contributions to the corrections field, named for Hoyt Cup, who had a reputation for getting inmates involved in community service. Cup was superintendent of the Oregon State Penitentiary for 17 years, from 1968 to 1985, making him the longest-serving superintendent of a maximum security prison in U.S. history. And he nearly lost that career in the wake of Carl Cletus Bowles' escape. Maybe he should have. While Bowles was still at large, Governor Tom McCall had promised that if anyone were hurt during his evasion of authorities, Cup would be forced to resign. That never came to pass for some reason, maybe because the hunters were murdered out of state? Either way, he continued working in the Oregon prison system for a total of 37 years, retiring January 1st, 1986. I have to imagine he learned a lesson from that, not to be duped <laughs> yeah. by prisoners who might be charismatic and good-looking. Or if you're going to provide certain things, they still have to be secure and not just at a Motel 6. There was an article, I think it was published a year or two after this incident, all of you know Bowles' escape, and some information came out saying that Superintendent Cup hadn't sought the advice of a team of people that did that sort of examination to, to determine whether or not people could could, could oh, have like, a conjugal like, visit. Like who was yeah they evaluated. No one was, no one was vetted for being like uh, not a flight risk. They normally were. Carl Bowles was not. 
But they were saying he was under his spell. Hoyt Cup described himself growing up as a, quote, fatherless street kid, secretly yearning for guidance and structure. He believed that childhood desire filtered down into his career, caring for cell blocks of men, once kids, who may have once run as free as Cup had. Hoyt Cup died October 8, 1990, in Portland at age 63. The inscription on his headstone reads, A Man Who Cared. That's the end of the story, and I have a couple of quick postscripts here that didn't really fit into the story. An NBCNews.com article from October 19th detailed the five-year efforts to, quote, spur a cultural shift not only at the penitentiary, but also in other correctional facilities across the country by helping create a sense of normalcy inside the facility, unquote. This was being done in the form of a Japanese garden built on the grounds of Oregon State Penitentiary by the Asian Pacific Family Club, consisting of those in custody of the prison, who were tasked with fundraising for the entire venture. They achieved this, raising nearly $300,000 by partnering with churches and universities, community fundraising and grants, even receiving donations from local farms. One man, Johnny Kofer, said, quote, The day the trees came in, I hadn't touched a tree in almost 20 years. The experience was very emotional, to say the least. There's no Google Maps to restoration and redemption. You have to forge your own way. I think that even though I may not be forgiven for the harms that I've caused, maybe some people will be impacted in a positive way as a result of my choices today and tomorrow. And the second postscript. Hale Champion, who was one of many people taken hostage during Bull's 1965 crime spree, gave a statement at a Federal Firearms Act hearing later that same year. Senator Thomas J. Dodd, speaking with Champion, referred to the many previous witnesses at the hearing who stated there was no real evidence that long guns, shotguns and rifles, were commonly used by criminals. Hale replied, quote, One was held to my head for something like 20 minutes, so I can testify that at least once it was so used. Unquote. Ooh. I would have said that more snarkily. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when speaking of those opposed to stricter regulations on firearms, Champion also said, quote, These people will admit the necessity of some reform, but only in degree. They continue to feel that new regulations ought not to impose any more than a minimal burden of time and inconvenience on the would-be legitimate purchaser or user of a firearm. No matter how much additional regulations which would impose such burdens of time and inconvenience might help to solve the firearms control problems of society as a whole, I would urge that the attitude be reversed. They ought to be willing to accept relatively heavy burdens so long as their basic privilege is still available. Unquote. A champion indeed. That's cool that he was able to take that experience and... Love try her. to make things better. Remind, yeah. Reminds me of David Hogg from um, the high school shooting a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, just taking that voice and that experience to say, oh, you don't think that's used for that? Well. Yeah, especially when it's so easy to just move on in your life and mm-hmm. try to not think about it, but using that painful experience to try to make things better for others. And I like that point, too, of like, you should want more regulation. Like, you should want to have that burden. It's like if they if they accepted that, they would probably be able to have all the guns they mm-hmm. wanted if they just locked them up, yeah. registered them legally, and maybe didn't have a million, maybe. Anyways. I can't decide how I feel about Hoyt. Uh, I think he had the best intentions. It's like, is there blame? Is How much blame, I suppose, is there? Because he was the one that permitted this guy to basically be free, but it's also... 
you know, it's Cletus's choices and actions, but. Uh, yeah, he, it's like you expect them to know better in that position. Mm-hmm. You've met a million criminals. You should know better. Right. But at the same time, he was a compassionate person. Right. And he made a mistake. And we've talked about that where the burden of the parole board or whoever, and it's like you're taking that gamble and you're hoping it doesn't result in anyone losing their lives. Right. And then like, in this case, it's an educated hunters. guess slash your gut. And maybe his gut was just wrong because yeah. this guy clearly had a way about him. Yeah. He spent his entire life as a criminal. Oh, yeah. He was institutionalized. He knew how to get what he wanted. And then from I feel kind of bad it. for him, too. It's like he had no chance yeah. to be anything other than a deviant. Yeah, you get shipped off at 13. And it's like, oh, okay, I'll just learn how to survive this system. And now. that's what he was good at. That's what he knew. Yeah. And Josh, this case actually came up because it was connected to my Richard Marquette case from uh, a few episodes ago. Right. Because these two guys, Marquette and Bowles, were kind of the poster children for other people that were coming up for parole. Mm. And there there were articles that I read where people people were like, I am so close to getting paroled. And now everyone is so scared that they aren't going to get let out because Mm -hmm. these two guys were given an inch and they took miles. Right. And so there was frustration from the people that had given the uh, levity and then frustration within the prison system of like these two guys ruined it for everyone. That's hard because you can't you can't always judge someone by someone else's actions. Exactly. It's like everyone's an individual. They carry themselves differently in every scenario but it's really hard not to Mm -hmm. in a prison scenario or or like if you're the oregon state penitentiary you don't want to be like well we'll let more people out and we'll just keep seeing if they reoffend when you've got two people who murdered people when they were out which sucks so much because the argument is always just like rehabilitation and better conditions not always going to be someone who sneaks out i mean look at how many escapees we've Mm -hmm. had in this in this state yeah yeah i think i think cup was definitely responsible for a lot of that and should have definitely incurred more of the punishment but then again was it just him like isn't there a board of people who should be on those decisions well i think he bypassed all that Mm. he kind of took him under his wing as his like special project i believe and and i and i think too or i had this thought while while i was researching it is that i think Sometimes people with like great intentions do good things, and because they're doing something good, they assume that the mm, person that's yes. responding to it are yeah. going to be equal. He thinks it's a two-sided relationship, and, yeah. and it was one. So it was more from a place of naivete than like ego, and maybe also from a place of being in prisons for like twenty years before, yeah. that, thinking that he knew everything. When right, in fact, and this guy showed him something maybe he'd never seen in a prisoner before. Yeah. Yeah, like someone he's like, oh, I bet he, he could be the warden someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just like yeah. he, this guy could be the poster child for reform and like, look, he's attractive and he's nice and he's learned his lesson. I know I've been in that position, obviously, in a totally different realm, but you get those students that no one else can work with and they won't do any work and they won't sit in class or whatever. And you kind of like if you end up having one of those kids bond with you, you do kind of get this sense of like, I did it purpose or like, yeah, or like I can do this is my job. This is my purpose. I can do this with this kid. And then it's like, oh, my God, look, they're doing it. And then like you try to show off to someone and then they get like a black eye because the kid (laughs) was like only decent to you because you had that bond and that didn't translate to everything. So. I, I can see where that could happen, where it's just the charm and the connection. These two guys were maybe really 
connected on some level, but it just I, didn't I think translate. he was being duped. I don't yeah. I don't think it was two sided. I think he yeah. fell under the charm. What did you say? Swingali, right? Yeah, yeah Swingali. Yeah, that yeah. is a perfect description of it. That the prisoner had all the control and yeah. didn't, and the other guy didn't even know it. He yeah. didn't see it at all. Yeah, that's interesting and heartbreaking too. You don't think about trees at prison. Oh, that was sad. I had a little tear. Yeah, like you don't think about because you're like, oh, you know, outside, and it's like, no, it's the yard, but it's no yard. Like, well, and we've had plenty of listeners reach out, and uh, I think we were criticized once for it was an episode of particularly harsh subject where it is mm-hmm. hard to see. That someone is a human oh, with yeah. some of the stuff they yeah. did. But it is, it's true. Like these are people, these are humans. And just because they screwed up royally doesn't mean they should be treated like animals or worse right. than animals. And and what good or benefit like not having access to even a tree? Is That's that going not good to keep for them, your mental health? Yeah. At all. Is that going to rehabilitate them? Is that going to make them be like, okay, I won't rob a store next time because I want to see a tree? It's yeah. like we constantly see prisons who do well because they have programs where people are outdoors or their work release or they have more freedoms than mm-hmm. other prisons. So I don't think there's anything wrong with letting them have outside time. Right. And, and I think there's a balance because, you know, you always see like, uh, I think it's Sweden or something. The pictures of the prisons go around because they have like one prison because it's, <laughs> it's Sweden. It looks like a school. Yeah, it looks like a school and it looks like a, you know, country club getaway, which Sign is really up. right, which is really nice. But it's also like, what what is that balance? I don't know the answer. Yeah, what, what, what is the balance like? of rehabilitation versus punishment and making it an alluring Cause I thing. Think, yeah, I think it's both, right? You're there to be punished, but you're there to learn a lesson and try to become a better person. Yeah, it should be like, we need to cure you of... And you're not going to do that by keeping them desire. underground in a cement prison with no window, right. you know? You get Carl Cletus that way. Exactly. So I think there is a balance that nobody's gotten just right. Yeah. <laughs> which should have been noticed by prison. (laughs) (laughs) Prison. (laughs) Sorry, we just want to loosen you up. Thank you. I feel very loose now. Oh. Sorry. Butt cheeks flapping in the wind loose. (laughs) Yeah, when I twerk, it sounds like like dusting out an old rug or something. (laughs) (laughs) Two eggs and a hanky. Big old hanky. Dearest Cletus, <laughs> late at night, a dream of you. <laughs> but if you think about it in like Greek history, Cletus sounds a little different in my head. Yeah, I mean, I, I blame the Simpsons <laughs> Probably. for that slack jawed yokel. Our friend Chris. Super, I always forget the name of it. It's one word, right? Super, no, three. Uh, super uptight Christian family, like, can't even watch Star Wars, and they went to the theater to watch Rules of Attraction. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Uh, I like too that there's a whole scene where you, we watch him like take a shit in real time. Yeah, that's fun. He was dressed prison, prison, prison again. Oh. Excuse me, guys. We're I'm going, sorry. We're going back to prison. I'm not as accustomed to this as you are. I don't say prison is awful. Awful. Fuck. I'm sorry that we make fun of you. It's just we can't help it. We have to. I well, do to you guys. We, also, we hate men. 
Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You have a penis. Sorry. I know. We have to mock you. I'm sorry about it, too. You. My little pee-pee. <laughs> Grab it with a tweezer and laugh at it. <laughs> with your flappy butt. <laughs> that butt flapping in the air like that big-ass flag at Camping World. <laughs> Oh my God. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 